We've got a great group of elders at our church and uh, in our elders meetings, of course, there's hours of prayer and talking and discussing and it's become commonplace though for in all kinds of debate and discussion and prayer for someone who maybe hasn't been speaking much to speak up and say something so succinctly and so on point that the rest of us are just kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. That's exactly right. And it wasn't as though they were just holding on to it, waiting for all of us who blabber on to, to stop. But in the discussion and in the listening, in the discerning, they are able to distill and succinctly communicate Really, we feel like God's heart and, and what he wants to speak to us in those times. And we're really thankful for those. It reminds me of, a, of the series that we're about to start. We're just embarking now on a four-week series that we're calling Major Truths from Minor Prophets. Now, there are a bunch of, of prophet um, books in the Old Testament, and, and they're broken up into major prophets and minor prophets. There's major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then there's these minor pro prophets. And it's not that the minor prophets are insignificant. It's not that the minor prophets are, are shorter in stature. It's simply that they're brief, that they're succinct. They're shorter in length. They say in a short amount of space, precisely what needs to be said. And in, in that regard, I really appreciate the minor prophets. So in that way, you know, Eldon would be a major prophet and Jonathan would be a minor prophet if, if we're going by that kind of a succinct, not succinct kind of structure. Today, we're looking at the book of Haggai. And rather than have you spend the rest of my sermon looking for the book of Haggai, I'm going to help you out. Um, go to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and then just flip back into the Old Testament, uh, three short books, and you will get to Haggai. It's just two chapters long, two pages, so it's easy to, to flip over and miss. But we will be looking at Haggai with our time today. Haggai is one of the 12 minor prophets, and he's the author of the book of Haggai. He's one of the three last prophets in the Old Testament. And actually, the early chapters of Zechariah and part of Ezra have an overlapping timeline with what's recorded in Haggai, which is estimated to be about 520 B.C. Ezra gives the whole historic background and context for what we read in Haggai. Now, there were, in the Old Testament, pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic prophets. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> what that meant was Hosea for, would be an example of a prophet prior to the exile of God's people into Babylon. The book of Hosea is about God's unfailing love to an unfaithful people. Ezekiel was a prophet in exile in Babylon. And he had this twofold purpose in the midst of exile, which was to promote repentance and faith among the people who had been driven into exile precisely for their rebellion and faith and, and to stimulate hope and trust. Haggai, on the other hand, was a post-exilic prophet. We don't know a lot about this guy, but we do know that under the reign of King Cyrus, in Persia, the Judean exiles were allowed to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. 50,000 of them returned, we see in verse 12, that they are referred to as a remnant. 
we see that Haggai was one of them. And we also know that he prophesied really for a short period of time, over the course of about three months. The book of Haggai is the story of God's people who were actually more focused on their own comfort and satisfaction than they were to faithful obedience to God. And they failed to flourish because of it. But here's something fascinating. It's a bit of an anomaly for Old Testament prophets. Things usually don't go great (laughs) for Old Testament prophets. But the people actually responded positively and with sincere heart change to Haggai the prophet. And it led to changed behavior. This heart change led to changed behavior and they put God and his work first in their lives. And this led to true, deep satisfaction, blessing, and peace. Let me pray and we will dive into the text. God, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you that we can look at a relatively uh, succinct, obscure, little 2,500-year-old book in the Old Testament. And man, does does it preach? Does it speak to our moment? Such is the word of God. God, we thank you for your word and I pray that you would impress your word upon our hearts, that we would sit under it and live under it for your fame and glory. Amen. So here's what's going on. We have 50,000 people who've just returned under the newly appointed governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, who was actually an heir of David's throne and Joshua, the high priest. And they return, they settle into Jerusalem, and they begin the restoration project of the temple. This was their mandate. They cleared the temple of rubble. They replaced the altar of burnt offerings, making it possible for daily sacrifices to begin again. And by the spring of the next year, they'd laid the foundation of the temple. Pretty amazing. But then trouble began with some neighboring tribes, especially the Samaritans. Then King Cyrus died and his successor wasn't as supportive as Cyrus had been about their task of rebuilding the temple. And so because of these challenges, because of these obstacles, the work stopped. And the people turned their attention to other things and desire to rebuild died out. And 15 years went by and they were rapidly becoming like the neighboring nations around them, no longer distinct, no longer committed to God's work in the world. And that's where we pick it up. And it says this in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Their failure to rebuild the temple signified that that their own personal comfort was rising in importance above God's plans. Their priorities were were totally out of whack. They were living for themselves instead of God's glory. They had been in exile in Babylon and they had the opportunity to come back and then they face some challenges and they just stop 
living for God. They had inverted their priorities. Instead of having God first, they put affluence first. Verse 4 speaks not only of their houses, but em- emphasizes paneled houses. It's, it's emphasizing their efforts made on their own homes while the work of God laid abandoned. And then this phrase, consider your ways, which Haggai states, it's used five times in the two chapters of this book. And I'd like to ask you the question that Haggai is essentially asking the nation. And I'd like to invite you to consider your ways. First, have you failed to put God first? See, the work of the Lord is often difficult. It's often costly, right? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That sounds hard. And so what we often find ourselves doing is we focus on some lesser things that bring us a, 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 a measure of pleasure and that we think will satisfy us. And we, we kind of put God's work, God's mission on the back burner. We spend our money and our time on our paneled houses. We seek our comfort and well-being over the mission of God. It's a very pointed question, but have you failed to put God first? One of the indicators that we have is is that we make excuses like the one being made in verse 2. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. See, to neglect God, our relationship with him, And the work he's given us to accomplish is a clear indicator that we failed to put God first. Timothy Keller wrote this, the lie beneath every sin is if you obey God, you will miss out. If you obey God, he will crush you. If you obey God, he doesn't love you like you love yourself. He's not as concerned for your goodness and your well-being as you are. Therefore, sometimes you have to disobey. That's the lie underneath every sin. See, we assume that we're the ones who have our best interests in mind, and God reminds us here, no, he's the one who has our best interests in mind. Haggai says, consider your ways. It's a call to examine ourselves. I think so often we chase, we chase the flourishing life apart from God. And like Keller pointed out, we do it because of sin in our hearts that we know better than God or that he's out to harm me, not to help me. The irony is that God designed the world in such a way that it functions best when we are aligned with his commands and his purposes. In other words, human flourishing generally occurs when we honor God and follow his commands. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. We we switch it usually and want all our needs met, all of our cares. We pursue those first and primarily and then we'll do some stuff for God. But Jesus flips the script and it's actually really consistent throughout all of scripture. Put God first. He made the world. He knows how it functions best and how we function best in the world. And his laws and his commands are actually not out to harm us. He's out to help us with them. 
See, the remnant hadn't done that. They weren't honoring him. They weren't obeying him. So what Haggai is doing is he's showing them a decisive connection between their lack of obedience and their clear lack of flourishing. Listen in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it, became, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 20th century preacher James Montgomery Boyce wrote about those verses I just read. I do not know of any passage in the Bible that better describes the feverish yet ineffective activity of our own age. It's this attempt to find the life of flourishing on our own but not finding it because we haven't put God first. So what I find so significant here is that these are God's people in God's holy city and yet they failed to put God first. These aren't irreligious people. These are religious people. These aren't outsiders. They're insiders and yet they're failing to put God first. Another question for you to consider your ways and something I invite you to is, is today the day you put God first? Is today the day? It goes on, verse 12 says this, then Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, stirred up Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Throughout Scripture, we see this pattern. It's a pattern that I just read here. Heart change leads to behavioral change. Their hearts are stirred and they respond and they repent and they fear God and then they go and work on the house of the Lord. Behavior is simply a reflection of the heart. God simply, didn't simply want them to rebuild the temple. God wanted their hearts, and when God gets their hearts, then it becomes their desire to rebuild the temple. See, when our hearts change, our behavior follows. Like it said, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, verse 12, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. When you see this, this phrase, fear the Lord, fear God in the Bible, it, it, it's not referring to terror, it's referring to submission to God's authority 
And it's referring at the same time also to awe because of his power and glory. So when you see the words fear the Lord or to fear God in the Bible, that concept, really think of two words, affection and worship. It's, it's really the posture of putting God first. And that's exactly what the people do here. They respond to God's word with their whole hearts. They feared the Lord. And you know what followed? Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of all the remnants of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Their actions followed. Their work, their renewed, lived-out priorities. I think that this is one of the things God wants to do in this season at Central. I think in the Western church more broadly, like with the church in Ephesus that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, I wonder if for many of us, we've lost the love we had at first. Are we spiritual people? Are we Christians? Yes. But have we lost the love we had at first? I think that's an important question. Is Jesus the priority of your life? Does he have that highest position in your life? See, the invitation to the people of God in Haggai stands, the invitation to put God first in our hearts. If you've hung around Jesus at all, I think you know this. Jesus isn't after heartless doing. He's after your heart. God isn't hand-focused. He's heart-focused. Because when he gets a hold of your heart, everything else will fall into place. I want to point something out. The very first verse of this book says, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Then at the very end of chapter 1, verse 15, it says, on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month of the same year. In other words, all of this that's transpired in chapter 1 came about in the hearts of the people in just 23 days from pursuing their own comfort and affluence, padding their own personal kingdoms instead of building into God's, being called on it, repenting, turning to him, and re-giving themselves to the work of God and to the building of the temple. All of that transpired in 23 days. All of this change in hearts of people happened in such a short period of time. It's a bit of an anomaly. Like I said, they actually listened to the prophet. I wonder if today is a day like that for you. In this moment, at this time, to determine to put Jesus first in your heart. Whether that's for the first time in your life, to actually surrender to Jesus, to put him first in your life, or it's just the first time in a long time. I invite you to put him first. And then we dive into chapter two. It says this in uh, chapter two, verse two, speak now to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Here's what's going on here. Those who were old enough to have seen the temple built by Solomon before it was destroyed 66 years earlier would remember its size and stunning detail. 
And as they stood at the foundation of the new temple, those who had seen the former temple would have realized that nothing they could do this time would ever make their temple equal to the earlier one. There's no way it would equal the one that had been lost. And so the people of God looked at the foundation of the new temple and all they could think was that it paled in comparison to the temple of a bygone era. This opportunity that Haggai gives us to consider our ways, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, are faith comparisons debilitating you? Because here's these, these folks who remember the glory days of Solomon's temple, but it had been destroyed, and now they stand at the humble foundation of the temple that they are meant to build, and they think, ah, oh, what's the point? It's not going to be anything like the one we had. I think every follower of Jesus begins with joy, but then the spiritual battle to steal your joy in Jesus begins. And it is inevitable at some point that one of the things that will seek to steal your joy is the comparisons that we make. These, these could be comparisons we make to other Christians, to other ministries, other movements, right? To the church down the road or in other parts of the world or at other times in history. Do you do this? My faith isn't as strong as their faith. My gifts aren't as significant as their gifts. Our church isn't growing like that church is growing. I see all these people coming to Christ over there. It feels like it's been a while since people have come to Christ over here. I look back in history and I see the great awakenings and revivals happening in these earlier centuries and people coming to Christ, flocking to Jesus. And it feels like, man, we're barely hanging on here or looking at the early church and seeing powerful signs of the Spirit accompanying the early church. But it, you know, look around, it doesn't seem like that's happening anymore. Man, that kind of focus those debilitating comparisons, I, I, they really do stifle our joy. They stifle mine. I think those kinds of comparisons not only debilitate us, I think they stifle mission. And I think they stifle where God has placed us with the gifts that God has given us. Do you find yourself debilitated because of comparison? I mean, I go, I go there. <laughs> I go there. I try and stop myself from going there, but I go there, right? I give myself to study and then to preach the word, but I know they could listen to the most world-class preachers on a podcast, and many of them do, and then they compare that with me, right? And it's like the comparison, it just stifles joy. I don't want to do it. I don't even want to do this <laughs> because if I get down that comparison trail, it's debilitating. Same in the areas of leadership. I think often there's got to be a better leader than me for this church. There's got to be a better leader for this church. I look around at other leaders and I think, man, and compare myself to them. It can be debilitating. But, but one of the things that, that I'm learning to recognize is, is that robs me. But, but more than that, I actually think that kind, of, that kind of debilitating comparison actually robs our church. 
And overarchingly, I, I really do believe that kind of comparison robs God. If I play the comparison game rather than lean into the fact that, that God's placed me here, God's placed you here. God's given me the gifts he's given me. God's given you the gifts he's given you and wants me to be a part of this community with you seeking to be faithful to what God has called us to do in this time and this place. And what God says through Haggai next is the same thing we need to hear today if we're stuck in that cycle of comparing ourselves, our faith, and our ministries to others. And that's this. Do you realize that the best is yet to come? In response to that comparison and discouragement of the people, God has two words for them through Haggai. Here's the first. He says to them, be strong in the Lord. Haggai 2 verse 4 says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Three times in one verse, God says, be strong. How do we respond to these debilitating comparisons as we look around and say, man, my faith is weak. Theirs is so strong. And then we see God actually saying to us, be strong. But I want you to see what that means because this is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. God sending a messenger to tell someone to be strong. Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 31, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God appeared to Joshua, Moses' successor, before his massive conquest. God appears to Joshua with these words, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. King David gave this charge to his son Solomon in regard to building the earlier temple. Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. The Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church said in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Again, here in our text, three times in one verse. And I think God repeats it three times precisely because of how debilitating life and faith can get sometimes. We need to hear this from God. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And when he says it, this is what he means. Be strong in the Lord. What this is, is it's a promise of his presence. And it's God's presence that makes God's people strong. None of us are up to the task in and of ourselves. But he is. So his encouragement to be strong is to press into Jesus. Lean on Jesus, rely on Jesus, and you will find your strength in him. The other aspect to all of this is, is that it's this. 
God's plans are greater than you realize. Verse 9, what a great verse. The latter glory of this house that they are building, but they're feeling discouraged about. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai reminds us not to be discouraged by outward appearance as the best is yet to come. Not only would God provide the necessary necessary resources to the remnant in order to build the temple, but God would eventually accomplish a greater work by providing a greater temple. This is a messianic promise. In other words, it's a promise of Jesus to come. In John chapter 2, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The very temple that this remnant are giving themselves to building, Jesus will stand in front of, says the same thing, said, well, says in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus would declare, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the greater temple and God was using the rebuilding of the temple and the hope contained within it to point to Jesus and the peace he would bring. Remember, They stood at the foundation that dwindled in comparison to what stood there before. But what's being said here is that the latter glory of this temple would be greater than the former because Jesus was coming, the greater temple. And Jesus was coming and Jesus was going to die for our sins and rise from the grave and ascend to the heavens and send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to indwell believers and we ourselves would be God's temple. The latter days, yes, would be greater than the former. Now they couldn't conceive of it as they stood and looked at the foundation at that time and they were dismayed. I think we need that perspective as well that the best is yet to come. I mean, this puts all the comparing in its proper place. What will the outcome of that person who seems to have stronger faith and greater gifts be? Well, it'll be the same as you, the presence of God to go with them in a bright future. What will be the outcome of that more gifted preacher and and that leader of that larger ministry? It'll be the same as it is for me the presence of God to go with them, and a bright future. I wonder in these moments of discouragement, moments of hardship, moments of challenge, moments when we're down, moments when we question faith, moments when we're wondering what is going on in the world, that we can recognize the truth in these words. The best is yet to come. For some of you, I believe today is the day for you to put God first. Like I said, for the first time ever or the first time in a long time. And acknowledge that God's way is the way to a flourishing life, the way to blessing. And I think for all of us in these strange days we're living in, it's important to remember that the best is yet to come. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much for these comforting words this invitation to be strong, recognizing that our strength comes from you. An invitation to put you first and to recognize that's where the flourishing life lies all along. God, I pray that we would be a church 
that would put you first, a people that puts you first, that leverage our lives for the cause of the gospel, that live for your fame and glory and find great peace and joy and blessing, find the flourishing life in putting you first. And Jesus, in a world full of comparison, comparisons, God, I, I thank you. I thank you that we can rely on the bright future we have in you. I thank you. Amen.